Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This week, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra is playing two dynamically different symphonies with a Mozartian birdsong in between. I'd like you to meet a new maestro and an old friend, David Donsmeer. Welcome. Hello. And welcome back into our studios, pianist Orly Shaham. Hello. Hi, nice to have you back, Orly. It's been a while. It has. It has. But it feels like uh, seeing you again, being in this hall again, it feels like yesterday. And you say the nicest things. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, we have two symphonies to, uh, to talk about. Um, we'll start with the Haydn Symphony. This sure. is Haydn Symphony number 34 in D minor. David, this was his first minor key symphony. Yeah, it was. And uh, it's actually like one of the many seldomly played symphonies. Uh, I, I only know it because my teacher in Salzburg, Nes Russell Davis, he did all 104 symphonies. He recorded all 104. And Who is your teacher? Uh, Dennis Russell Davis was in, in Salzburg. And uh, it, you know, it, it showed us as a students that there were more than the last 12 or so. And you know, the, uh, one day I was just exploring and I was stumbling across this D minor symphony. And I was fascinated because it starts with the slow movement. I was thinking back, like, you know, since the Count of Esterhazy was kind of like always telling Haydn what to write or when he expects the next symphony. I was just wondering, how, how did that go down with the guests, the local guests? Uh, you know, you think you have a happy, nice short symphony at that time, early Haydn time. And then he starts with this kind of like incredible mesmerizing and painful slow movement. That's half the symphony. It's, it must have been interesting. But this is one of the secrets of Haydn. That Haydn was really quite revolutionary in a lot of what he did in those symphonies. They're not all the same. Yeah, he was he was uh, certainly I think I think very Austrian. He really didn't care very much about the expectations and just did w whatever he wanted <laughs> in many ways. And that's the great thing about Haydn, right? You you really get a true feeling for that he wrote what he wanted to write and not what somebody else wanted to hear necessarily. He also had the bonus of having this great job so yeah, he that had. he had room mm. to experiment. He was secure and he had a really good relationship with the Count of Esterhazy, who was really a music lover. And uh, I think that gave Haydn, you know, Haydn knew what he was worth. And I think that gave him the leeway that, that he needed now and then to kind of like, you know, push the limits. You grew up or at least you lived in the land of Haydn. Mm. Is the perception of Haydn as a composer significantly different in Austria uh, than it is here in the United States? Yeah, I actually lived one year uh, when I was four years old, right beside Esterhazy, pretty much, like in a, in, a, in a small town called Eisenstadt before we moved back to Salzburg. But no, I think it's, it's similar. Haydn has this, uh, you know, most people agree that he's a genius and, you know, no, he wrote a lot of symphonies. But again, also in Austria, most of the, the most played symphonies, for example, from Haydn are the late ones, the same with the string quartets. And... Uh, I, I would suggest that if I would go to Austria and I've conducted the symphony in Switzerland and it was also there the first time they played it. So it's it's not that like in Austria, all 104 symphonies are played regularly. It's 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 still uncommon. What symphonies of his that aren't played regularly do you find really attractive, David? Well, I, I love the 34th for the reasons I mentioned. I, I, I love 75, which I will do this season with my chamber orchestra. And again, 75 is also one of the symphonies that doesn't get played uh, often. That's the two ones that I really like to do. Uh, some other people, uh, there are some in the 60s that are very, very good. And so, so, I mean, like, you know, you could pick and choose 
different ones. There is, you know, the, some of the early ones. So it, it, it's really a matter of taste, I think. So I can only encourage people, like when people like Haydn or, or ch generally like classical music, um, just just pick a random number. You could kind of like roll dice or so to kind of like pick a number and just give it a listen and see if it's a good one, right? There, there are a lot of good ones there that are played very seldomly. I don't think there's a bad one. Uh, well, no, I mean, clearly there's no, not a bad. Actually, there, there is a list on, is, is it BBC, I think, or so, where they made a, 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 a guy of, of, of the radio sit and listen to all 104 symphonies and come up with a list, which is, of course, a crazy situation, but come up with a list from the best to the worst. And, and, and it, it's a good starting list because he describes every of the symphonies just a little bit like what, what is special about the symphony or how long is it or so. So there's, there's a good, good reading point. But no, I think with, with Haydn, so you, you can't get, go totally wrong. I mean, there's never been a symphony that I listened to where I thought like, that is terrible, no. Haydn no, also has piano concertos. Have yes. you played these orally? I have. I've done a number of them. And? You know, one of the things that I was thinking as you're talking about the symphonies, it's a lot like his piano sonatas, actually. <coughs> There's so many piano sonatas, <coughs> yeah. but people gravitate towards the same four or five pretty much all the time. And they're all fabulous, and yeah. they're all quirky, and they're all experimental, and they're all, uh, you know, communicative in some surprising way. Uh, I think, you know, we don't give Haydn enough credit for just his endless creativity. Yeah all the time. He was really always, this guy was never at a loss for a new way of saying something. Yeah, I don't know if it's a matter of oh, times gone by or what, but a lot of his, his symphonies and his writing in general was very quirky for the time, uh, really innovative, and sometimes just downright funny. Uh, but we don't seem to, I, I guess... I guess we have we, we have forgotten that. Well, you know, I think there's a decorum that we think is there, and perhaps it's slightly more there in Mozart's Vienna. But what uh, what I always teach my students, you know, when they're first approaching the music of Beethoven, I tell them, look, he learned, you know, he knew a lot of things, uh, but he learned to be funny from yeah, Haydn. Yeah. And if you can <coughs> find that thread, that musical timing wit that came down via the teaching of Haydn into Beethoven. It's, uh, it's very rewarding. So I ask you, David, why is it important for an orchestra to play Haydn symphonies? Well, I mean, like uh, the way that Haydn writes, it's 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 like I said actually th this week to the orchestra here. It's 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 like skeleton music, right? Uh, Haydn uses you know one melody, a bass and a little bit harmony, particularly in the earlier symphonies. Maybe in the later symphonies, there is a little counter melody there, but it's it's very, very clear-cut writing, so you can't get away with anything, right? I mean, in, in, in Haydn, there is not something that gets covered up or, you know, sloppy playing uh, or any any like that just like gets punished immediately by, by the music itself, right? You, you can't get away with anything in Haydn. Either you play it properly or people will hear it. And, and, and so I think that's really something that uh, is, is essential It's if you play Haydn. Or to a certain degree, Mozart. You you can work on sound, but again, you, you work really on the on the basics. And also, since the orchestra size is a little bit smaller, you know, it's it's really chamber music. It's it's like a string quartet just on a bigger scale. So you know, everybody needs to listen to each other. You cannot solve that through conducting. That's really something you gotta you know you gotta play together intuitively and and and, and phrase and make music together intuitively. It's essential. Is it the same for the piano writing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's you know e every note is. <coughs> so meaningful and you have to approach it the right way mm -hmm. you have to leave it the right way uh, there's so much that you have to be thinking about just with a, a single note yeah. um, there there was one conductor last season who said that if an orchestra can't play Haydn well then the orchestra is not going to play 
anything well. Mm. That Haydn is Haydn is the the, the touchstone for uh, the, whether or not an orchestra is really good. It's uh, the hardest thing to do. He said it is. It is very hard. I I, I will agree with that. I think it's um. You know, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to disagree with, with, with a colleague, particularly since you, you didn't tell me who it was, right? But um, <laughs> the thi- look, the thing is, I think different orchestras have different strengths and so, right? I, I will agree on that point that if if general classic, like if an orchestra is, is not good at playing Haydn, Mozart, uh, Schubert, um, it, this will this will filter into into the rest of, of the performance of, of other composers. But, uh, you know, th- there are, I, I think there are orchestras who, whose strength it is to play more classical music. There are orchestras whose strength it is to play uh, Bruckner and Shostakovich and so. But, yeah, the, the basis of all things is, is, is well, a basic, the basis of, of inventing, like, the modern classical, you know, symphony is, is by Haydn. And so uh, if you really struggle with Haydn, you at least will struggle with Beethoven and, uh, to a certain degree, Brahms, obviously. You know, that is, that is all very connected, yeah. Now, uh, the second symphony that's on the program is the Dvorak mm-hmm. VII. Uh, Dvorak Seven was this like, really kind of stormy <laughs> affair. Yeah. And this is extremely different. Dvorak said number eight would be different from the other symphonies with individual thoughts worked out in a new way. How did he do that? Uh, yeah, the, the the eighth and the seventh some, somehow for me belong together because they're really kind of like very different from each other. I, I conducted the seventh just this summer, and it's it's a very k- dark and very quirky and very edgy piece. And the eighth is you know like uh, quite smooth and 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 melodic, um, also quite solistic in the way he uses the the wind instruments. So he gives gives a lot of soli there. Um, but I think, as very typical with Dvorak, there are two sides to it. I mean, the, the eighth, and that's what, what actually fascinates me. You know, you, you should not have too many moments of the orchestra playing really too loud or so, because there are some moments of roughness that should come nearly unexpected. So you basically try to lull the audience into this belief that it's a very peaceful and kind of like charming piece that depicts, you know, the countryside of the Czech Republic, people coming together, having a nice gathering or so and 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 then he unleashes like for example already in the middle of the first movement this incredible storm of emotion that that that, that takes you by surprise and i think it should right i mean it's it's typical dwarshak he he lulls you into the belief that everything is all right but there are obviously clouds on the horizon there was a something that was once said by Gil Shaham, but turned out that it was actually Orly Shaham who said it. <laughs> <laughs> and Orly said, Dvorak never wrote a bad note. I agree. I mean, Dvorak is the master of the theme also. Um, you know, I, I, sometimes when you when you think about th- third movements, right? You know, with with in, in some symphonies, and you know, there are many composers who wrote great third movements. But from an audience perspective, I think in some symphonies, you know, it's 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 not always the third movement that you talk most about or that you you know hum the melody. But with Dvorak, you have these incredible third movements where the melodies are just soaring and are just brilliant. And you know. It, he just effortlessly writes these incredible melodies and then kind of like just binds it together in a, in, in a certain way. I mean, ma- masterful. And not only the way melodies, but also like these, these informed melodies from the Czech you know, countryside inspired by kind of like Czech folk music and so. And, and w- without it being on, on the nose, like without being like, oh, you know, finger up now, I tell you this is, you know, Czech music, but just like slightly influenced by it, like Schubert with Austrian music. It's it's great. I read this wonderful thing where they said that the um, 
the, the, this one critic was talking about how the folk music of Czechoslovakia is really in, informed by the language. The oh, yeah. rhythm of the language yeah. is the rhythm of the yeah. folk music. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the same in, in, in many cultures. You find the same in Austria. Um, it, it means it's... Hungary, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, like the, the Hungarian language is so different, and you hear the folk music of Hungary has very different emphasis on on different uh, on on the rhythm, and the same in the Czech Republic. And um, yeah, it's 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 very much informed by that. You know, there are similarities. Of course, Dvořák was also influenced by by Austrian music, but you know, he's still he's still in 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 his you know idioms and the way he kind of crafts his melodies. He's clearly a Czech composer. There is no question about that. Oh, Dvořák said that uh, had a really easy time writing this one. This one wasn't a problem for yep. him. He said, "Melodies pour out of me." Yep. Um, can you sense that ease throughout? Absolutely. It feels like a symphony that, that was written in one go. And I think that's, I mean, the eighth is my favorite symphony of Dvorak. Um, and I think that's exactly the feeling wh why it is my favorite. It feels like, uh, you know, actually, when, when you think about the beginning, it, it doesn't even feel like it starts. It, it feels like a piece that is already there when it starts and just continues. And I think that's the, the feeling from the very beginning to the very end. It just is in one go. And I think you can tell that he wrote it. Um, in, in a good way, effortlessly, right? I mean, there is always an effort and some pieces are great where the composer struggled, but I think that piece is one of the good examples of a composer sitting down and having maybe the whole piece already there as a concept in the head and then just putting it on the page. And then at the end with the, the, the great trumpet call. Yes. Uh, in, in the finale, was it Kubelik who said the trump, uh, invoking the trumpets never called a battle. <laughs> they call to the they dance. They call to the dance. I, we, we work on that a lot uh, because that's very important. The last movement, it's a little bit heavy orchestrated, you know. There is, the, the, you know, the brass is playing a lot, and and there is lots of things, and then easily you, you can lose the rest of the orchestra. But that was what what I was talking a lot about in rehearsals. It's it's a dance. It's not a it's not a battle march. And then there comes a kind of Turkish march section in the middle of that movement, which is quite quite funny because you think the march is in the beginning, but it's not at all. It's like invitation to dance, and then there is like a big kind of countryside dance, and then in the middle he subverts that basically by turning it into a Turkish march, and then going back again to the main theme, but. I, I couldn't agree more with Kubelik. There is n not everything that's fort and loud always has to be like, you know, kind of like a battle cry. You know, there can be a very joyful forte. We, we, we have to always think about the, the meaning of the music and why it's there and, 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 and not just what is on the page. Now, in between mm. is uh, sandwich in between <laughs> is a Mozart uh, piano concerto. Mozart sandwich on, <laughs> on whole wheat bread. <laughs> <laughs> the Mozart piano concerto number 17, uh, orally, it, it, it worked out very well that this is on your brand new CD. It's a pretty good deal, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I have to say, though, this is the only date I have this season where that worked out so well. So thank How you to the have? Rochester Philharmonic <laughs> and to you, David. <laughs> How did that work out, you I, know? Did you like have to twist an arm? Please <laughs> let me play my well, CD. Well, you know, no, you know, when I, whenever I have uh, either something that I'm preparing or something that is just released, I usually those are the first pieces I suggest. And anytime I come anywhere, it's a there's a bit of a negotiation, right? I, I might say, well, can I? I'd like to play one of these two concerti, and they say, well, we just had those two last mm. year, or <laughs> you know, could you do this third one, or just no. that? You know, so it, it goes back and forth, and in the end, it, it's sort of um, it's just a, a roll of the dice. <laughs> You play Mozart with the RPO uh, fairly regularly now. Um, and what is it about Mozart and you, Orly, that works so well? What isn't it about Mozart, right? He is, he's really everything. Uh, and I, I've, I, I come to him, I come back to him through my whole life. You know, I 
played my first Mozart sonata at age six. Uh, so I've really come back to him for over th- 35 years now. Um, when you started, when you started when you were three? Uh, yeah, when I was five, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Um, he just he teaches us everything we need to know about how to make music, about how to understand phrasing, about how to um, how to interpret the humanity that's uh, embedded in the musical notes. I'm actually in the middle of another big project to record all of the Mozart piano sonatas, and I, I've nice. recorded twelve out of the eighteen, oh. and the other six are coming soon. And I have to say, I'm I'm as happy as a clam. I'm just sitting there in the studio, you know, enjoying what he's experimenting with in each sonata and the concerti are no different you know he's just he's pushing the boundaries of musical language and of physicality and of form and he's playing around with genre in a way that's so creative you know in the middle of in the middle of a piano sonata you suddenly have an opera or you have a um, a, a piano concerto. In fact, in this concerto that we're playing, you know, the the ending of it is an opera buffa finale. Yep. You know, so th- he does this cross genre thing, which is so clever, and it, it speaks so strongly. Well, one of the things uh, that's always a knock on piano concertos is that the, the piano part's great, but the orchestral part, meh, or vice versa. <laughs> but Mozart seemed to get both of them right, David. Mozart is. Uh, it, it's very funny because I'm I'm again like you know reading and and listening a lot about his life and so e- even though of course you know as a guy from Salzburg I I know a lot about mm-hmm. this but the the amount of genius and the exceptionality of his genius must have been so yeah. incredible like he's really a one of a kind person I think and that's what you see in the writing there is nothing that's not perfect I mean people can say I like Mozart's music or I, I, I'm not so keen on it or so but like the perfection of his writing is is unquestionable and that's the same for the orchestra part or for the piano part and I mean like he had it in his head and he just wrote it down and it's perfect right and this this concerto in particular <coughs> I was actually just speaking with one of the the violists in the orchestra about this so he wrote this concerto for his wonderful student Barbara Ployer to perform mm-hmm. um, which means he made, wrote out the piano part with her in mind uh, and of course he was her not mm-hmm. only her uh, piano teacher, but also her composition teacher. So he's clearly trying to teach her all sorts of things through this piece. But that meant most likely he was probably leading the viola section in the orchestra. And you'll see that there are some really great little viola moments in this particular concerto. I'm sure it's because he felt confident that he could put them in the right place. Yeah. And when you play Mozart concertos, and I'm told by pianists that they're just about the most difficult thing. The hardest thing, thing absolutely. I, you know, someone actually said, given a choice between having to play Mozart or Rock 3, I'll take the Rock 3 any Much day. easier. Really? <laughs> yes. Why? Uh, because uh, you... If you're not 100% on every single note, if you're 100% on most of the notes, it's okay. It's just, it could be still fabulous. Uh, but in, in a Mozart concerto, every single note has to be exactly where it needs to go. Um, there's, a, there's a sparseness to the writing, a little bit like what uh, David was oh. talking about with the Haydn, right? There's that, that lightness. But there's also just this overarching sense of communication that you cannot possibly it never it never just rides by itself you have to be speaking it there's a there's a, a vitality and a bringing to life that happens in every moment of each one of his concerti this concerto in particular is difficult because the final movement is in variation form and or variations with orchestra are just the hardest thing in the world. I think they're hard for you for the orchestra just as well, yep. because what happens is that you're playing, you're really super on and completely committed for a minute and a half, 
And then it switches from the piano to the orchestra. And then the orchestra has to be super on and totally committed for a minute and a half. And then they listen, you know, and things go back and forth. And each one is in a completely different character. And Mozart, everything that Mozart writes originates in the theater. Yes. So it has to be complete theatrical commitment <laughs> at every stage. Let's talk about that variation because there is a story that that is the variation on a bird song. He had some starling and maybe... He heard the starling play it and he transcribed it, or maybe he wrote it and taught the starling to sing it. And what's the deal with the bird? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the legend for many years was that he had this starling who would sing this tune, but it would have an incorrect note at the end. <laughs> and he decided to turn it into a movement. But modern scholarship has shown us <laughs> that, and I love that people get paid to research this, but actually I'm glad to know that he wrote it first and then taught it to the starling who never did get that last and note right. And got the last note wrong, <laughs> of course. <that's> like <laughs> a failure as a teacher. <laughs> I, I apparently upset Mozart. <laughs> now, as I was reading about this, we talk about humor in music and, and, and the humor that, that Haydn had. There is allegedly some kind of bassoon joke in the middle of this. So do we know what this bassoon joke is? It says something to do with the bassoon doing what it wants to, even though the orchestra has moved on. I, I, I don't I don't know exactly where it originated or what Mozart had in mind, but I mean, it's 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 quite prominent. It's just uh, something, you know, I I don't see it that big in this piece because I think that uh, Mozart, like every time I, I, I look at bassoon parts of Mozart's pieces, um, I think he was kind of like awaking the bassoon in general. Like when you look at Mozart's symphonies or his piano concertos and you compare it to Haydn's writing or so, I mean, Mozart was one of the first composers. I, I think he was really in love with the bassoon and I'm always trying in Mozart when I do Mozart to encourage the bassoons to play out as much as possible um, because he was really one of the first composers who really kind of like, you know, took the bassoon as, as a, you know, a solo in serious yeah. solo instrument like like the oboes and and the flutes, I'm just trying to in, in envision sometimes how the bassoon players felt about that in his time, right? Either they were elated or thought, like, what, what is this? Like, <laughs> Yes! <laughs> Our time has come! But I think it has a lot to do with the kind of color that Mozart is able to elicit, yes. you know? Yes. And he really, he really, not only did he use them, but he used them for color yeah. uh, in a way that... And it's the same with violas, right? The bassoon and violas is, is, is the range. instruments that Mozart uh, totally awakened yeah. and brought out. No, they're actually kind of uh, vocally in a very yes. similar yes. range as well. Well, yes. well, his favorite thing was to play the viola, as I keep yeah. telling yeah. all the violists I meet. <laughs> and, then, and and thank you for that, because they need that. That little shot in the arm <laughs> is, is so helpful. You know what? But but that's that's a that's a U.S. thing. I mean, we, we also make jokes. We, we also have our viola jokes in Europe. But in terms of sound concept, like the amount of, you know, level of playing that we expect violists to make in terms of noise levels, like, I mean, they, they, they need to play out in particular in Austria, is, is, is incredible. I mean, like, the, the violas are always, like, one of the proudest groups and one of the groups that really kind of, like, wants to be heard. There is no question about how the importance of the violas are. Now, the, I've seen orchestras set up in various ways, yeah. including the violas on the outside. Yeah, I have are them you in Zagreb. In my orchestra in Zagreb, I have, I have the violas on the outside. Have you done that with the RPO this time around? I, I, I didn't. When I come as a guest conductor, I just let the orchestra in, in, in peace sitting how they are used to sit. But uh, in, in Zagreb, where I'm music director in my chamber orchestra, the same was with the Philharmonic, I always switch the celli and the violas and have the celli inside and the violas outside. I think the violas 
need to show that they're the proudest group of the of all. That's important. I like the I like the sound balance of that better. I, too, I, I think it works. As a you, you put that that <laughs> deeper voice yeah. in the yes. middle. Yes. And exactly. You get you get a more mellow, and then you move the contrabass. You, you also behind. Out. Exactly yeah. because you move the contrabass behind the cello, so you have also the contrabass facing out. So you get a little bit more oomph from below. And then you get more oomph from the violas and also this kind of like solistic attitude. You want the, the audience to see the violas. I, I, I think it's essential. But th this is really kind of like from where I'm from, this thinking, this, this lower strings uh, and, and, and middle strings is, is everything in the orchestra sound in, in, in Austria. It's just like, you know, that's the way I, I grew up and that's the way I, I got taught that it's all about the lower and the middle strings. That's how but we you, But, you know, this is how Mozart was thinking well, that's what too, I mean. right? And so that clearly that, that tradition continues because there's so many places, much. for example, in this concerto, mm -hmm. and in, in all the concerti, but there's so many places you can listen for in this particular concerto where uh, the cellos and, the, and the, the double basses and I are doubling yes. the lower part. And it's clear that that is the formation, yeah. right? That is where the music first comes from and it builds builds up from there. Now, when you come to Rochester, and probably wherever you go, Orly, you're kind of like the hardest working person in, in, in <laughs> on the stage. I mean, you know, you really, you take this very seriously. I remember the last time you were here, you said, look, when I come to town, I am a temporary employee of the orchestra and the community for, with whom I am working. And so, just true to your form, we're going to visit Orly's backyard. Mm. <laughs> we'll talk about this. Yeah, so this is my, my kids' program. Um, I've been doing this, I think this is my ninth season doing this. Um, and I, I, I can work that out because, no, I, it's actually my tenth season, because my children were three when I started, my twin boys. And, of course, I, like, like many musicians, I looked around and I said, there isn't a series good enough to take my kids yeah. to. So I started one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've discovered no, that. I think I've, I've, yeah, I've discovered that many <laughs> other people have done the same thing. Uh, and yeah, we, so we'll be doing a performance on, on Sunday uh, at the Temple Beth El. And what it is, it's really uh, about the joy of making music with others. The, the Bachyard are always programs that are met, uh, infused with a great deal of chamber music and a great deal of fun. Uh, kids get first before they do anything else because I, I learned this from my sons who had a great deal of energy at age three. They couldn't possibly sit still for, <laughs> for a concert unless they'd gotten their wiggles out. So the very first thing we do is have the kids really experience the instruments. They get to play the instruments, they get to pluck the stringed instrument, mm. bow the st stringed instruments, and meet the musicians up front and personal so that they really feel like they're already part of the family before mm. you come in and have a concert program. And the concert program is very informal. Um, I cater things to that attention span. You know. The, pieces are sort of the, the right length 30 second long <laughs> three, 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 three minutes but <laughs> but there's also you know I talk a lot in the program we you know we wear silly costumes but I, I talk a lot and I kind of try to help their them understand that their listening has a point uh, we have specific uh, piece that we'll be doing this time is one of our favorites that was written for me by the composer Stephen Mackey uh, when his son was quite little he wrote a little march called the sneaky march uh, and in this sneaky march, we have, I, I play it, and we have the entire audience participate. We teach them a few things that they're supposed to listen for and do, and they're, you know, age-appropriate sort of things. And we practice, we rehearse together, and at the end, we all perform it. And my, my goal is for the children to not only get the joy of music, but also to understand that listening is a really worthwhile activity, mm -hmm. uh, which you hear everywhere is more and more difficult for teachers to find. And my, my secret goal is that the parents who bring the children remember how much fun it was to go to concerts before they had kids <laughs> and you know then perhaps 
are able to make more of an effort to yeah. attend other concerts later as well. Will there be any burping? Because there's <laughs> nothing that children love more. <laughs> Well, for that, you have to come to the Mozart Concerto, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you are both programmers. Um, David, you're in Zagreb. Um, Orly, the Pacific Symphony Chamber Music Series. So as programmers, how do you approach your job? What do you feel we as the audience should experience in a season? David? Um, well, it's a, it's a difficult question because that changes from season to season, right? I'm, I'm trying not to repeat uh, everything all the time. For, for me, it's an emotional thing, you know, what, what, what do I want to experience the audience on an, on an emotional level? I mean, like, uh, that has also a lot to do with, you know, how the orchestra is playing and how we approach this. But um, th th then, then, of course, you look at the season and, 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 and you think about like, okay, I mean, uh, do you always want to hear the same or do you want to mix it up? I prefer to mix things up, but have a kind of like a general structure over the season that I say, okay, the, the season, most of the programs or all the programs have, have some way of how they connect, you know, some kind of concept overall, but they are very varied so that you don't have the feeling, okay, I went this week to a concert and the next week it's, it's, it's kind of the same. And then, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to find new ways, like in Zagreb we did one time, uh, you know, the Mussorgsky pictures of an exhibition, we did a rock band version of that, like it, it was rock band versus uh, orchestra. And we had one of our players uh, write an arrangement for that for rock band and orchestra and kind of like uh, make it a little bit longer and, and perform that. And the audience just loved it. But it was enough Mussorgsky there, like enough of the original, that it was still uh, great for a classical audience as well. So I'm, I'm trying to experience with new things. And now and then I also put together programs that have, you know, just classical pieces in there, but then I try to approach it in an emotionality that the audience has experienced. Whatever goes into programming or into performing or so, for me, it's always like the, the, the one thing that's, that's the main importance is that the audience experiences something on an emotional level and, and comes out of the concert hall, not with the feeling like, oh, yeah, OK, that was nice. Yeah, we heard some some notes, some sound waves on the air, but actually that they have a real, real experience that they have the feeling, OK, it, it was great that we went to this life experience because we had, you know, some some special evening. Now what do you do? Really? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I absolutely second everything that, that you've just said. And I think I, I always view my role when putting together uh, chamber music programs or my own recitals mm. as, as sort of like a I'm the museum curator mm. uh, and I'm deciding which artworks to put next to each other. And as you know, when you walk into a museum, if you're looking at a piece of art that you may have seen many times, if it is right on the opposite wall from something uh, that in some way reflects on mm -hmm. it, it, that's so much more powerful. Uh, so I try to put pieces together that, that speak to each other and that maybe because you will hear them at the same time, you will suddenly discover different things about each of them that you wouldn't have thought about without the other. You know, music is always communicating with itself. And of course, you can go and you can listen to a great performance of any one of these pieces, but that not that live experience, that joint emotionality yeah. of the live experience, of suddenly hearing those pieces all together, uh, I think is a very, uh, a much deeper and a, a much deeper sensory experience. You really get so much more out of it. I'm going to thank you both for coming in and spending some time with me, uh, David Dansmeer and uh, Orly Shaham. It's uh, been thank a you very much for having me. Thank you, Julia. If you would like uh, some information about the RPO season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.